Ayers, Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, and Eliza Thomas. All heartfelt, nature-loving teenagers were wonderful and immeasurable young girls from Austin, Texas. Their undying friendship and shared passion for all living things was cut short by unsolved murders in the waning hours of December 6th, 1991, leaving all who knew them across the Texas capital and the entire state at large grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop murders and the horrifying tragedy left in the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt story. This is Cold Case Detective. The youngest of the four girls was Amy Lee Ayers, born on the final day of January in the winter of 1978. She was quickly introduced into the ranching culture and cowgirl lifestyle that the open plains of Texas can inspire. From a young age, she became obsessed with the outdoors and all that mother nature had to offer, finding a special affinity for animals and associating with them in her free time. Her two major interests were fishing and horses, falling in love with competition shows. As young as three years old, Amy excelled in horse shows across the state of Texas. She even learned the art of cutting horses, in which a horse and its rider attempt to separate a cow from its herd and keep it singled out. It was a fine equestrian skill to master, let alone for a young girl. In short, Amy was born to be a horse whisperer. These deep-rooted passions carried on into her adolescent years as well. When she wasn't hanging around the horse barn, she was training her dogs new tricks or making friends with strangers' pets, withholding the uncanny ability to attract animals on the fly, as if her energy and spirit made them draw near. She took this spirit wherever she went, whether it was to the rodeo to support her brother Sean or to her meetings with the fellow yearbook staff at Burnett Middle School. After classes ended, Amy would venture to Lanier High School's Junior Future Farmers of America, where she served as vice president, or to the Travis County Livestock Show, where she would show hogs and join arts and crafts programs. It was all prep for her master plan as Amy dreamt of one day owning horses on open farmland while tending to animals as a veterinarian. With so much natural talents, we can be sure that these dreams would have materialized had it not been for that fateful final journey to the yogurt shop with a friend in late 1991. The next youngest victim, Amy Ayers' aforementioned best friend, was 15-year-old Sarah Harbison. Born on October 28th, 1976, Sarah was the younger of two daughters belonging to stepfather Frank and birth mother Barbara Harbison. In 1979, Barbara and her daughters moved to Austin and Sarah never looked back. Much like her future best friend Amy, Sarah displayed a love for outdoor activities and wielded a competitive spirit at an early age. 
She loved playing sports, especially basketball. She just loved being a part of something and forcing herself to be better at whatever she set her mind on. Sarah never slowed down either, taking on as many activities as she could. Alongside basketball, Sarah also joined the cheerleading squad and would cheer directly after her own basketball game, supporting the boys' teams too. When she got into high school, she also excelled on the freshman volleyball squad too. This hectic lifestyle didn't bother Mr. and Mrs. Harbison though, as they pushed Sarah to achieve greatness and follow her passions. Thus, Sarah joined other organizations at school, such as the Lanier FFA chapter, and became a representative on her high school student council. But her very favorite extracurricular activity, showing sheep at local county fair competitions, was shared with her older sister, Jennifer, another victim of the yogurt shop mystery. Jennifer Harbison, the eldest child of Barbara Harbison, was born on May 9th, 1974, two and a half years prior to Sarah. She, her mother, and her sister had an inseparable bond growing up. In 1980, Barbara married Frank, and the family of three grew to four, cemented with true happiness and consistent support. Through this support, Jennifer was much like her younger sister in that she was encouraged to live up to her imaginations. She was short and petite, quick and clever, but equally as confident and athletic. She loved to remain social at school, also channeling most of her energy into sports and the Future Farmers of America program, where she served as president of the local chapter and vice president of the district. She led the sports fandom between her and Sarah, playing t-ball as a youngster before becoming a stellar track and field star in high school. She used her athletic abilities to ready herself for a future career in rodeo barrel races, the perfect dream for a girl with her interests. Without a doubt, she and Sarah held many similarities in their close relationship, their mother describing them as wonderfully unique, faithful, and most of all, mature for their age. It was Jennifer's maturity that prodded Barbara to allow her to work part-time, late-night shifts at a minimum wage job at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop so she could help pay for a navy blue Chevy S10 truck her birth father was wrangling for her. In a heartbreaking twist, it was this innocent plan that led into darkness after a few months on the job for Jennifer and her older co-worker, Eliza Thomas. Eliza Thomas was born on May 16, 1974, in Travis County, Texas. Her parents divorced when she was only a child, but she remained tight-knit with her birth mother, Maria, and grew up with her younger sister, Sonora Thomas. Like many of her friends and fellow mid-Texas natives, Eliza was fond of country music and dancing. When she became a teenager, Eliza and her best friend at the time, Michelle, would go out together to dance events. Maria Thomas would tell reporter Dick Ellis after the murders that her favorite memories of her late daughter were the times when Eliza and Michelle would meet up before or after dancing, get dressed up with nice clothes and makeup, and laugh through the homemade photo shoots. It was this youthful ritual that inspired Eliza to dream of becoming a model someday with her expertise in beauty products a facet of her career goals. When she wasn't collecting tubes of lipstick, she was looking for the newest little knickknacks to add to her miniature collection, mostly made up of cats figurines. Much like her friends, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy, she too loved animals and the Future Farmers of America program. 
In fact, she used these activities to support her modeling aspirations, selling the pigs she'd show at county competitions to fund her first modeling portfolio. It was also a big reason why she also got a job as the night shift closer at the local yogurt shop, and sadly, why she passed away far too soon, along with the three other innocent girls of Austin, Texas, in December of 1991. Let's now turn to the timeline of events leading up to the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. At around 4.30 p.m. on Friday, December 6, 1991, Barbara Harbison returns home from work to find her youngest daughter, Sarah Harbison, sitting on the couch eating a snack. Sarah informs her mother that she's going out that night with her friend Amy Ayers and asks if Amy can spend the night with them. Barbara agrees and tells Sarah she and Amy can get a ride from her eldest daughter, Jennifer Harbison, to a mall near Jennifer's work, and then a ride home after her shift ends. A few minutes later, Jennifer returns home from school to prep for work. Her mother and sister tell her of their plan, and she happily agrees. Sometime after 5pm, Jennifer and Sarah depart the Harbison household for the Austin shopping complex, the last time Barbara sees her children. Jennifer drops off Sarah and Amy at the mall and clocks in for the closing shift at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop at 2949 W Anderson Lane with her co-worker, Eliza Thomas. Over the next four hours or so, the night shift at the yogurt shop operates as usual. At around 10 p.m., customers at the store report seeing all the girls inside, happy and acting normally. This would be the last confirmed time that Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah and Amy are seen alive. Sometime within the next hour and 47 minutes, assumed to be around 11 p.m., the four friends are entrapped at the yogurt store by multiple assailants. The offenders gag, sexually assault, and eventually murder the girls in cold blood via gunshots to the head with 22 caliber lead bullets. They stack the bodies in the shop's storeroom, pour accelerants around the crime scene, light it all on fire, and escape into the thick of night. At exactly 11.47 p.m. the same night, Austin police officer Troy Gay patrols the Anderson Line, North Austin area. He spots a fire burning at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop and calls it in to his dispatcher. Austin police backup arrive on the scene and just after midnight on Saturday, December 7th, authorities discover the dead bodies of Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy. Eliza and Sarah are found with their wrists tied, with Jennifer's unbound but her hands positioned behind her back. Their corpses are nude and charred almost beyond recognition. Amy's body is found in another section of the store, a sock-like cloth tied around her neck, with second-degree burns on about 30% of her body. It's theorized the bodies were stacked on top of each other, with Amy escaping the pile and crawling away before being shot once more. All the girls are presumed to have died before being burned. A few days later, on Monday, December 9th, law enforcement confirms reports that there were multiple people involved in the robbery turned homicide, and there were no signs of forced entry, and that the items used to tie up the four girls were all found in the store that night. The following day, on Tuesday, December 10th, the city of Austin, Texas, grieves with the various parents over the loss of their four children. A funeral is held, and it is attended by over 1,500 citizens. 
On Thursday, December 12th, State District Judge John Wisser seals the autopsy reports to sustain the evidence's confidentiality and protects the investigation. At North Cross Mall on Saturday, December 14th, a man by the name of Maurice Pierce is arrested for possession of a 22 caliber gun and bullets. Austin Police Detective Hector Polanco brings him into question in regards to the yogurt shop murders, and Pierce eventually tells the detective that his friend Forrest Wellborn used the 22 gun in the four girls' murders. Despite this development, police report that they have few leads on December 23rd after a false confession by an anonymous teenage girl and her boyfriend are proven untrue. To make matters worse, the Maurice Pierce tip is buried in case files after the interrogating officer, Detective Polanco, is removed from the investigation due to his dirty past in coercing false confessions from suspects on March 23rd, 1992. Seven months later, in October 1992, the next best lead evaporates when Porvirio Villa Saavedra, a suspect that Mexican police say confessed to his involvement, recants his testimony, telling American authorities that Mexican federal agents tortured him into coercion. Over the next three to four years, leads pour into the Austin Police Department, but no arrests are made and the yogurt shop murders quickly begin to devolve into a tragic cold case. However, sometime at the end of 1996 or the beginning of 1997, APD detective Paul Johnson is newly assigned to tackle the murders and pulls the old Maurice Pierce tip case file for closer inspection. The testimony isn't acted upon until early 1999, when forensic officers test Pierce's 22 caliber gun against the crime scene evidence. They find it does not match the weapon used at the yogurt shop. Nevertheless, police bring in one of Maurice Pierce's alleged cohorts, Michael Scott, multiple times between September 9th and 14th, 1999. After over 20 hours of intense interrogations, Scott confesses to playing a role in the murders. On September 15th, Austin police travel to Charleston, West Virginia, where they interview another alleged cohort, Robert Burns Springsteen IV. Springsteen is interrogated under scrutiny for five hours before admitting to raping Amy Ayers and helping kill the others. A couple of weeks later, on October 5th, 1999, Austin judge Mike Lynch signs the arrest warrants for Scott, Springsteen, Maurice Pierce, and Forrest Wellborn. They are officially arrested the following day, on October 6th, for capital murder. Later that year, on December 1st, police collect the four suspects' blood and DNA samples for crime scene analysis. Eight days later, on December 9th, another judge rules Pierce and Wellborn will be tried as adults, despite being just 15 and 16. On December 14th, Robert Springsteen is indicted by a grand jury, followed by Michael Scott and Maurice Pierce on December 28th. The district attorney, Ronnie Earle, says he will seek the death penalty for both Springsteen and Scott. In another twist, though, a different judge dismisses the capital murder charge against Forrest Wellborn on June 30th, 2000, after a second jury fails to indict him. Despite the lack of physical evidence against him, prosecutors continue with their case against Robert Springsteen in April of 2001. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury finds Springsteen guilty of murder 
and in June of 2001, Springsteen is sentenced to death. 16 months pass by, and a similar conclusion to Michael Scott's trial is reached when he's found guilty of murder on September 22, 2002, and sentenced to life in prison on September the 24th. However, a few months later, on January 28, 2003, District Attorney Ronnie Earle asked for a dismissal of the charges against Maurice Pierce, claiming there wasn't enough evidence to convict him in the moment, and Pierce is released after spending over three years in prison. It wouldn't be until three years later, on May 30, 2006, when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturns Springsteen's conviction, claiming that the written confession of Michael Scott was improperly used against Springsteen in his own testimony. This exact same reasoning is used again on June 6, 2007, when the court overturns Scott's conviction as well. In a bombshell announcement by prosecutors in the spring of 2008, they report that advances in DNA technology have revealed that a previous piece of undetected DNA from an unknown male subject was discovered on a vaginal swab taken from Amy Ayer's body. This DNA profile does not match any of the four original suspects. This same DNA profile is found on the body of one of the Harbison sisters in June of 2009, and matches none of the over 100 suspects the police have looked into thus far, nor any of the forensic officers or medical personnel who had dealt with the corpses in the years since December 1991. Later that month, on June 24, 2009, the DA's office tells a Travis County judge that they are no longer prepared for a retrial against Michael Scott or Robert Springsteen without the identity of the man to whom the new DNA belongs. At 2.50pm, the two men walk out of the courthouse with their attorneys, finally free men. In October of 2009, all charges are officially dropped against Scott and Springsteen. In the 11 plus years since the wrongful arrests of Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen, and almost 19 years since the tragic assaults and murders of Amy Ayers, Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, and Eliza Thomas, no matches of the DNA samples found at the yogurt crime scene have been announced, and there are currently no known active leads in the investigation. Without a doubt, the biggest piece of evidence discovered in the yogurt shop murder investigation is the mysterious DNA profile belonging to an unidentified male, found on two of the four bodies after DNA technology expanded at the turn of the millennium. While not much is known about the sample outside of the gender of its donor, it's been announced that the profile does not match any of the tested suspects police have compiled since their manhunt began, nor does it match hundreds of associates of the prime suspects listed by the Austin Police Department thus far. Technicians have been ruled out, fellow law enforcement officers have been ruled out, the first responders have been ruled out. This means the DNA most certainly belongs to one of the men responsible for these harrowing acts of rape and murder. As we await the results of further testing and for a match to be uncovered, another set of points to the case are critical in understanding how hurtful the authorities were in their brutal mishandling of suspects early on. 
and how the deception of the police may have derailed the entire investigation through their despicable use of coercion and eliciting false confessions. Had Detective Hector Polanco not intimidated Maurice Pierce into claiming his 22 caliber gun was the one used in the homicides by his friend Forrest Wellborn, investigators would never have followed up this false lead and would never have arrested two innocent men along with their supposed cohorts, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. Instead, they could have focused their time, money and energies into finding a viable suspect. Police and prosecutors alike knew the four men had no physical connection to the yogurt shop, as well as having the knowledge that Pierce's gun wasn't the murder weapon. So to cover up their ineptitude, they turned to the bad cop routine. It is a tale we have seen far too often. If you want a better idea of how detectives coerced false confessions from four young boys, hampering the search for true justice and destroying four more innocent lives in the process, you can listen to clips of these coerced confessions by following the link in the show notes. You'll hear audio clips from the elongated interrogations, full of persuasive tactics utilized by cops who want pleas of guilt to spill out of the tired minds of innocent people. Mike, look at me. You're remembering what happened. You were inside there, right? I don't. You're remembering what happened. I don't actually remember going in the building. Imagine being an underage boy brought in by police officers for a crime you didn't commit cornered in a windowless, low-lit room by men twice your size, demanding you say what they want to hear, bullying images into your malleable mind, forcing false memories upon you. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Not only that, but the officers used each man's false confession against the other, tricking them into believing that their friend was right, and to deny it would be to deny the other's seemingly true story. It's a crippling, debilitating sensation, and one that took precious years away from a proper investigation into finding the real killers. The Austin Police Department and Travis County Prosecutor's Office should be ashamed to the highest degree, and must take the blame. Their rush to create answers where there obviously were none cost the victims' families the justice they deserved. It is inexcusable and disgusting behavior yet vital to understand in grasping the entire picture of the failed and fractured yogurt shop case files. We can now turn to the most prominent theories surrounding the mystery of the Austin yogurt shop murders. You're the coldest guy I've ever talked to in my life. Are you a cold-blooded murderer? No, sir, I'm not. I, I think you are. I think Maurice is absolutely true about you. The wildest part about the yogurt shop murders and its notoriety for the coerced confessions is that it didn't stop with the four main suspects believed to be responsible for years until DNA cleared their names. In fact, investigators heard over 50 false confessions related to the case, including one from infamous serial killer Kenneth Allen McDuff. Macduff's testimony, coming the day of his execution, was at first seriously considered by police when they realized he was in the Austin area around the time of the yogurt shop massacre, murdering Colleen Reed with accomplice Alva Hank Worley on December 29th, 1991. 
However, after exhaustive investigative measures were taken, it was found that these claims by Macduff were false, a disturbing trend for a case lacking more and more clarity by the day. So why did so many people come forward with fake motives and lead authorities astray, distracting everyone from the real culprits still running free? For some, like Macduff, it was perfect fodder to receive their twisted 15 minutes of fame. These instigators deserve absolutely no recognition and should not be named, as their falsifications take away from the serious matter at hand. For others, false confessions might have come from further malpractices taken by Austin police and case detectives, who had the previously mentioned history in pulling the trigger on coercion. If the four boys were manipulated into confessing for the case to be fast-tracked to the solved folder, it's not out of the realm of possibility that others were subjected to similar tactics. Again, it goes without saying these awful investigative patterns damaged the case, and the police who took them were criminals in their own right. So, while the police were wasting time putting figurative and even literal guns to the heads of innocent parties, what other theories were discussed among case followers and armchair sleuths? The craziest and most ill-advised theory was purported in court by the prosecutor's office after Pierce, Wellborn, Scott and Springsteen were cleared by DNA evidence. They claimed that they still believed the four men were guilty but that a mysterious fifth cohort was the donor of the DNA profile. This theory was nothing but a desperate attempt by APD and the district attorney to save face in an obviously bungled prosecution effort that shouldn't be considered further as anything but a coward's last attempt to frame four innocent men. Another string of theories discussed across the message boards and email chains revolved around possible serial killer suspects. After Kenneth Macduff was ruled out, Sleuth started pointing out other murderers with similar MOs. The most frequently mentioned was Paul Dennis Reed, also known as the Fast Food Killer, convicted of seven murders over a string of three fast food chain robberies from February to April of 1997. Reed killed his victims in a similar fashion to the yogurt shop murderer, bringing them to the building's storeroom, binding them at the wrists, and shooting them in the head, execution style. While these slayings happened in Nashville, Tennessee, Reed had a criminal history in Texas dating all the way back to 1983, getting out of prison for an armed robbery charge in 1990. However, because Reed was eventually apprehended, his DNA records would have been entered into a criminal database and subsequently ruled out as a match to the yogurt shop murders. Reed also operated alone and dealt with mental disabilities according to his family, going against yogurt shop crime scene evidence that there were multiple offenders who were likely skilled criminals, operating with precision. These data points also most likely rule out involvement of the gunman in the Lane Bryant shooting mystery that took place on February 22, 2008. Despite the vast amount of time between the Lane Bryant case and the yogurt shop case, it's hard for people to ignore the similarities in crime scenes. The Lane Bryant shootings also involved all female victims who were executed via gunshots to the head after being trapped in the back of their store. 
Ultimately, there was one victim who survived and told police that the gunman was working alone. And for a case that took place in Illinois, a thousand miles away and 17 years apart from the yogurt shop case, a link between the two is highly improbable. Of all the theories put forth by the community surrounding the case, there is one hypothesis that stands out from the rest. An idea about who the killers might be built from a couple of eyewitness testimonies gathered by the consumers at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop the night of the massacre. These statements place two unidentified men sitting at a booth after 10 p.m., coming across as odd and emitting a peculiar aura. The first man was described as white, standing at around five feet six inches in his late 20s or early 30s, sporting dirty blonde hair and a large black jacket. The second figure was described as much bigger, a six foot white male of average build with darker hair and an elongated pointy nose, sporting a green military fatigue type jacket. He spoke with a deep yet crystal clear voice. The first customer to speak out against the two men was Daryl Croft, who testified for defense lawyers in Michael Scott's criminal trial in 2002. Croft, a former police officer and security manager in 1991, had visited the Austin yogurt shop at just about 10 p.m. on December 6th with two friends. He recollected how, when he went to go stand in line, a man wearing a green military fatigue jacket matching the description of the second man was loitering, asking other customers to go in front of him so he'd be at the back of the line. When he approached Croft, he actually asked him if he was a former cop and if he'd jump ahead of him in line. Croft denied his bizarre request and monitored the man as he made his way to the counter and ordered a soft drink. Once he paid for the beverage, the man then slinked around the counter and walked into the back of the store. Croft, growing more and more suspicious, asked Eliza Thomas, who was working the cash register, why the man was allowed back there. She informed Croft that the man had asked to use their restroom and she gave him permission, acting as the shift supervisor. But Croft couldn't shake the strangeness of the incident and waited around the front counter for a few minutes longer than normal, waiting to see if the man in the green jacket returned. When he failed to show up, Croft left the store with his friends, but reported the description of the man to the police a few days after the murders were reported on. For reasons unknown, a police sketch of the man in the military jacket was never procured, and Croft failed to pick a recognizable face out of a couple of suspect lineups in the aftermath. Lineups that included the four innocent boys. The other major testimony regarding the two men was pulled from old police statements by the Austin Chronicle for a story published by reporter Jordan Smith in December of 2011. These statements came from a female customer who told police she and her husband were two of the last customers at the yogurt shop just before closing at 11 p.m. on the night of December 6th. They reported seeing the same two jacketed men sitting in a booth, acting in a way that made the woman's skin crawl. She watched them in the reflection of the shop's front window as the girls began to close up the shop by refilling napkin holders, cleaning floors, and flipping chairs on top of tables. Even as the couple left, the two men remained in their seats, acting as if they weren't going anywhere soon, 
as Jennifer Harbison locked the door and flipped the sign to read closed, as to dissuade any new customers from entering. The girls inside acted normally, but according to the couple, the men did not. It's hard not to find these shared experiences rather intriguing. These two men have not been named or cleared by authorities. For all we know, they were never tracked down by police, nor interviewed. Law enforcement has stated that they are interested in speaking to the two men, but as witnesses rather than suspects. However, considering their uncomfortable vibes and peculiar behavior, those who consider them suspects have good reason to do so. In one of the crime scene photographs taken the morning after the murders, you can see a booth in the background of the dining area that has an empty napkin dispenser and cleared tabletop. When customers were shown the photo, they agreed it was likely the booth the two suspicious men sat at. This means that the murders happened in between the men leaving and the girls being able to finish up closing their booth, a very slim amount of time considering they were in the middle of clearing the tables. Thus, if the two men aren't responsible, they at least had the best shot at spotting the real killers, making the mystery of the unidentified male closing customers the most puzzling and important of all. Before we divulge our hypothesis of the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop unsolved murders, we want to make it known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. For starters, we believe that these murders were indeed the actions of multiple assailants, or a killer with at least one other accomplice. The evidence hides in the simple fact it would be next to impossible for a single perpetrator to subdue all four girls by themselves, take them to the back storeroom, tie them up, and set the entire place on fire without causing a ruckus. There are two key pieces of data to support this. Remember, none of the neighboring businesses at the strip mall where the yogurt shop was located reported hearing anything to suggest murder the night of December 6th. One business did say they heard a few popping noises, most likely the gunshots, but nobody heard screaming or shouting or banging or anything to suggest a desperate fight was put up. If there were multiple offenders, keeping everything quiet would have been a much easier task. The young girls, friends, and families agree with this, stating that their courage and tough mother personalities would be too much for one person with one gun to overcome. Secondly, we are confident that these murders were orchestrated by career criminals and likely sociopaths who were seeking to attack women with the resources to do so without detection. These horrific crimes were not carried out by high school boys attempting to rob the neighborhood yogurt stand. Rather, they were premeditated acts of violence, people who sought to harm and strike fear in their victims. 
The reason the killings are more than likely not a simple robbery gone wrong is the presence of an accelerant around the storeroom after the fire was put out. Most criminals do not bring lighter fluid along with their robberies, usually seeking to run in and out of their targets and leave without physical conflict. Plus, there were plenty of other shops around the area that would have provided much more cash than the yogurt shop did. No, we believe these murders were intentional from the beginning. It is highly possible that the men who murdered the girls were watching one of them from afar, maybe even prior to December 6th. They could have made Amy and Sarah targets after spotting them at the mall without parental supervision, a popular spot for offenders to track unsuspecting women. While there is no evidence to suggest this, it cannot be ruled out when considering these killers were concise in how they acted and the history of violence against young women in general. So who could the killers be? While it is impossible to know for sure, we believe those two jacketed men previously mentioned are the most fitting suspects. They were acting suspiciously, bothersome to multiple customers, and were the only two of over 50 customers that evening that have yet to be accounted for. Not only that, but the story by Daryl Croft leaves us wondering if that tall man in the green jacket wasn't just going back to use the restroom, but rather scoping the shop for cameras, or worse, a place to commit a future assault. They were the last two people seen with the girls and wearing clothes that could have concealed weapons. Of course, this is all circumstantial evidence. However, it is also curious that the two men who were lurking in the booth at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop on December 6th have not come forward to absolve themselves of any further suspicion. They could have effortlessly cleared their names and identities through science, submitting DNA to be compared to the sample obtained by police. Until that happens, they are the greatest suspects we have and must be found to unlock further answers regarding the entire mystery. Until then, we must keep the faith that the DNA profile currently held in evidence can be used to help aid investigators. Sadly, the type of DNA sample received, a YSTR strand, also known as mitochondrial DNA, isn't the kind one can simply input into a genealogy database and connect it to relatives. While it can rule out suspects when compared with direct DNA donations, it's hard to be used as a backwards investigative tool, like the DNA was used for cases in the Golden State Killer investigation. Not only this, but the FBI has withheld the DNA sample from such genealogy studies anyway, claiming privacy laws to be complicating its potential use in further DNA campaigns. Still, we will hold out hope that a breakthrough is just around the corner. And in the meantime, we will celebrate the lives of Amy Ayers, Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, and Eliza Thomas. We will champion their unique personalities, shared passions, and their unparalleled drive to be nothing but unapologetically themselves. We will spread the hope and happiness and heartfelt courage those four girls emanated in their daily lives, never missing an opportunity to inspire those around them. We will remember their athletic feats, their unmatched equestrian skill sets, their farming expertise, and their community-driven spirits. 
we will remind the world that these were four young women full of promise, navigating their mid-Texas neighborhoods so that one day they could move out to new pastures and shape the world at large for the better. The tragic rape and murder at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop on the night of December 6th, 1991 will not be the defining legacies of Amy, Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza. Their legacies are defined by every positive and life-affirming moment before, defined by their love for both nature and humanity. This is a type of love that is not burned or broken, no matter the circumstances of their final moments. It is the reason their memory will never perish as we continue a search for their justice into the infinite night. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for watching this Cold Case Detective documentary. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing on Patreon for a whole host of benefits and access to additional content. I'd like to give a very special shout out to our incredible Chief Detective Patreon supporters, Katerina Faustov, Cherub Cherub, Daniel Halfstone, Jennifer Babcock, and Nick M. Alongside, of course, everyone who supports us on Patreon for making this show possible. Thank you all so much. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.